Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. So the way it's going to work, we're just going to dive right in and start with questions. I'll read the little intro. We'll do the thing, and we'll start the thing. And then um, we'll jump right in. Um, Scott here, uh, no interest in giving uh, a speech before we start asking questions, so we're just going to start asking questions. Um, All righty. Here we go. And just in time for Thanksgiving, a book to help you deal with people with whom you disagree. (laughs) So everyone, get on out and get your copy. (laughs) All righty. So... Bang the gavel, intro, questions. Please send yours up. They don't have to be related to just the book. Uh, All right, here we go. My name's Melissa Kane. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club's hosting of Scott Adams. In his new book, Loser Think, Scott dives into the epidemic of mental shortcuts that he believes is making us prone to believing in bad ideas. According to Scott, Loser Think is responsible for people stereotyping all of Trump supporters as racist, believing that gun control is equal to full confiscation, and most importantly, or avoiding self-reflection when personal relationships end. We're very excited to have him here with us tonight to discuss his new book, Loser think, and whatever else you guys would like to ask him. He has told me nothing is off limits. So there you go. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Scott Adams. So what's loser think? Loser think is a word I invented because (laughs) I noticed that when I was on Twitter mostly, and I'd be debating with various trolls and, and real people too, and every once in a while, somebody make a, a really good comment. And I think, well, I, I don't quite agree with that, but that's really well, well put. And I check on the profile, and it would be lawyer or economist, scientist. And then I'd see a comment that's just batshit crazy. I'm not supposed <laughs> to say that, probably. <laughs> and, I, and I look at it, and I think, well, who sent this? And I'll click on the profile, and it'll be poet, musician journalist. And I'm thinking to myself, is that a coincidence? Or is there something about your experience in different fields that teaches you how to think? And I reflected on my own experience. I've got a degree in economics and MBA, and they literally teach you how to think. It's not so much, you know, the learning the specifics of economics, but they teach you how to compare things. They teach you about sunk costs. They teach you about the time value of money. And these, these are just some of the techniques. But they teach you how to think productively about your world. And it's not just economists. You know, scientists have their own way of looking at things, historians, psychologists. And for some weird reason, I've had experience in all of those fields. I'm a, chain, I'm a trained hypnotist. And Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked in corporate America for 16 years at a whole variety of jobs, from strategy to marketing to technology. So just by chance, I've experienced all, a lot of domains. And you pick up, how do they think in those domains? And I thought, a lot of people just haven't been exposed to them. So I thought I'd write a book and fill in your gaps, if you have any. Well, yeah, are you making the case here for, for generalists? Uh, and if you are, um, you know, for people who are sort of multidisciplinary, and if you are, is it just uh, the non-humanities? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not even learning the depth of those fields. So I can teach you how an economist thinks 
Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. So this is how easy it is. If you've never heard of the concept, raise your hand. Have you ever heard of the concept of sunk costs? Raise your hand. Maybe less than half. Every Giants fan. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so sunk cost refers to the idea that if you've already spent your money on something, let's say you've invested it, that you shouldn't uh, look to that to make your next decision. In other words, you should say, that money's gone. I can't get it back. There's nothing I can do in the future that will change the fact that it's gone. It's sunk. So if you make your decision based on the money you've already spent, which people do, and they say, I've already put X dollars into this. I don't want to waste it. So I'd better double down and keep investing. Now, that feels like common sense. But the first time you hear that you can't change the past... You say, oh yeah, that's sunk, that's gone. I'll just make my decision as if I were starting today and I'd never even heard of that other stuff. So that, that's how easy you can learn it. You don't need to be an economist. You just have to hear some of these things once and, you, and it becomes part of your thinking. Well, you know, so you call it loser think because you, you really write that you want to stay away from calling people names. That, and you actually wrote a line that I underlined. It said, uh, calling people stupid will not make them smart. <laughs> and I thought, pithy. And true. Uh, but but you, you, you said lose or think because you said you write lose or think because you want to address the behavior and not demonize the person. And so can you talk about the use of labels and, uh, and how that's, that's one method of lose or think? So one of the things I learned doing the Dilbert comic is that mockery is incredibly powerful. And people would say to me, uh, I, I can't tell you how many people have said this, lots of people over the years, they, they would write to me an email and say, we were going to do this you know, certain policy at work, but we saw a comic of yours mocking it, so we decided not to, because <laughs> nobody wants to do the thing that's already been pre-mocked. It's like, you don't even have to wait. <laughs> I, I mocked you in advance. You don't even have to wait. No waiting. So, uh, and in fact... Uh, even Elon Musk, when he was uh, writing a memo to his employees, telling them how he wanted them to behave, what the culture should be like, one of his uh, tips was to not do anything, policy-wise, that would make it into a Dilbert comic. <laughs> now, now, the power of that is that he didn't have to explain what that meant, because everybody who's familiar with the word Dilbert and, and the comic, they can kind of, oh, you know one when you see him, right? It's like, oh, that's, that's a Dilbert situation there. So I use that same technique by coming up with a word, loser think, that people can use and say, hey, that's loser think. And specifically, here's a photo I took with my phone of the page of the book that explains it better than I can. So, you can, so I give permission in the book to tweet down a page to people who have a gap in their thinking and maybe it can be filled in. Now, of course, having a word like loser think makes it easier to mock people because nobody wants, nobody wants to hear, hey, that's loser think. As I was just checking my Twitter feed before I came in here, and I saw lots of people who've read the book accusing other people of loser think, and I thought, it's already working. <laughs> it's already working. Hashtag loser think. So I'm using mockery in its most productive way, to mock people into more productive thinking. Uh, and, but do you think that the people who really need this book are going to buy it, or do you just counting on like holiday sales for people to buy it for them? <laughs> well, when you name a book Loser Think, you're pretty much guaranteeing somebody's going to give it to their relatives for the holidays. Because <laughs> the beauty is it's, it, it feels like a gift, but you're not really sure. It's like, hey, Uncle Bob, I got you this book. Loser Think. You'll learn about other people. <laughs> 
<laughs> so one of the chapters that you write talks about mind reading. And honestly, you know, pun intended, you read my mind with it because it's one of the most um, frustrating things that I see uh, out on the internets um, are people who are sort of trying to assert that they know what's in your soul, what's in your mind, what's in, what's in somebody else's heart. Yeah, and here's another example where I tried to name it. Now, mind reading, of course, is already a word, but applying it in this way gives a little extra power. If you look in the news, you'll see the pundits jabbering, you know, one side or the other. And quite often, their jabbering is about an assumption about what a stranger is thinking. What were their real motives? What's the real reason you're doing this? Now, sometimes they're right. You know, sometimes it's obvious stuff. Political stuff's usually pretty obvious. But there's so many times that you couldn't possibly know what this stranger is thinking. And as evidence that you're not good at mind reading, I give you every relationship you've ever been in. Because, you know, there's probably somebody sitting right next to you who in the last 24 hours assumed you were mad when you weren't, assumed that you were hungry when you weren't, assumed that you were, you know, happy when My you weren't. My husband is in the front row. Be careful, sir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All except you. <laughs> so, so mind reading is uh, something that I call out, and by giving it a word, putting it in a book called Loser Think, it allows people to say, oh, yeah, that's a bad thing. And, and weirdly enough, it was so pervasive, mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever heard a single person ever call it out. Like, no, you're, you're imagining you could read somebody's mind. But the moment it's called out, it becomes sort of part of the conversation, and then you're going to start spotting it. Wait, wait till you see what happens in the coming weeks. You're going to start seeing mind reading all over the place, and you're going to say, I guess I saw it before, but like it, it crystallized because somebody talked about it as a word. Now it's a thing. Well, there are a lot of great concepts in the book, uh, but there is something here where I really feel like you buried the lead. <laughs> so in, in, in one part, you talk about the difference between um, coincidences and um, you know, things that are actually uh, you know, anything you should take seriously. And so he's writing about his day, basically, and he's like talking about sort of all these things that are happening that appear to be you know, magical. And, and I quote, um, a few days ago, I arranged my collection of flashlights. And I was like, you have a collection of flashlights? This book should be called I Have a Collection of Flashlights. Well, who doesn't I have, have so a many collection questions. of flashlights? How, do you have, what, how many do you have? Is there a community? I, I need to know. I really like flashlights. <laughs> I, I, uh, I confess that readily. And I had, I had built a shrine to my flashlights in my man cave in my garage. Literally, I'd you know, put them up on a board, and I'd made sure they all had fresh uh, uh, batteries and everything. And I'd never done that before. Right? I always loved, I always buy a flashlight whenever I see a new one. It's like, oh, that's a new one. And so I had my collection all there, and they were all fresh batteries, and I was so happy with it. And the first time ever that I've been living in my house, somebody ran into a, a, a power pole with an SUV and plunged my neighborhood into darkness the same time that I'd built a shrine to flashlights. And, and so I said to myself, no problem. And I went to my flashlights, and, and I was good. Pew, pew. It's just it's like, yeah. how many do you have? Uh, well, you know, I recycle and throw some out. So I have a good solid 25 that are the, the core 
the core collection. Are there antiques? Are there hard to find ones? Is there like a community where you're like, oh, that's that version. Oh, that's amazing. Well, that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're mostly plastic and I just like how they look. And I don't know. I like flashlights. There's no explaining it. Okay. Terrific. Now we know. Thank you. Uh, so you are not a fan of the press. Like as a, as a member of the press, I was reading going, ow. Um, you talk about it, but, but, but I think it's fair. Um, I, I didn't name you. Some not, of the criticism, I know, not, not this time. Um, but but, uh, but I, I didn't feel like it was unfair. And I thought, you know, ta- attacking sort of the structure of the press um, is, you know, something I think a lot of journalists wouldn't even disagree with you about. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that, how that feeds into the way people think? So I like to put it in the context of a small technological change that nobody noticed when it happened, which is the ability to, to measure with precision what people are clicking on, and even why in some cases. And once that was the, the case, once everybody could measure, oh, this, these people click on this, these people click on that, it, it would have become obvious, as it did, that the things they want to click on are the crazy stuff. The things that make your hair catch on fire. It's like, I don't want to hear about the budget. I want to hear about an impeachment. I want to hear about a, you know, a plot to overthrow the government. I want to hear about some really good stuff. And so we're all, we're all elevated in our opinions because the news model is forcing us toward more provocative stuff. So where before they would have just said, well, here's the news. There's my news. Now it's it's replaced entertainment to a large extent. I'll bet some of you would would relate to this. How many of you watch the news like entertainment? Like it's not even for the news anymore. It's really it's for the laughs. You know? Yeah, yeah. You you, you watch it like so a, many liars in here. Everybody's hands should be up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, so so that's the big problem. It's the big problem is that once you could measure stuff. There was no way that public companies that are beholden to stockholders could do anything but the things that get the most attention. There's no way you could ignore that. And so we had to get to this point once that small technological change happened. And that caused us to bifurcate into two complete, almost civilizations at this point. And we're in bubbles, and we don't really see what, what's happening in the other bubble because it looks crazy or insane or stupid or maybe they're lying and we can't quite tell. We know there's something wrong in that bubble, but it doesn't make sense and we, we can't make any sense of it. And it's largely because people have become totally bifurcated in their, uh, their news consumption. So conservatives are a little more likely, I think statistically, to at least sample CNN once in a while because it's, it's more pervasive. But people on the left typically are not even aware of the argument on the right. Or, or they might know one of them, but not the good one, for example. <laughs> not mine. <Yeah. laughs> so, so that's part of the problem. But you do give some tips for how to get out of your bubble, sort of how to recognize if you're in one, and then how to communicate. How to yes, I recommend connect. pharmaceuticals. Um, <laughs> no, not, not, in the way, not in the way you think. Not in the way you think. If you watch the news, as I do quite a, lot, quite a bit, there are pharmaceutical commercials that come on. Now, if you make the mistake of actually listening to one, you're going to hear more problems than you knew that a human could have health-wise. <laughs> it'll come on and say, well, you can take this pill, it'll solve one problem, but you're going to have diarrhea and you're going to have, you know, your heart will explode and your lungs will be congested. 
and forget about sex, because all, all, all good drugs take that off the table. That's the first thing they do. So what I do is when there's a pharmaceutical commercial on, I, I say to myself, first of all, ah, ah, get this off of there, because I don't want to hear about all these problems, because I don't have those problems, but if I hear about them, I'm going to get them. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get all those problems if I keep hearing about them. I'm going to be like, well, I think I do have a rash, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, so I'll run to change or whatever to change the channel as quickly as possible to the opposite. So if I'm on CNN, I'll go to Fox News and vice versa, because they both have pharmaceutical commercials. And in that way, I miss a lot of the ugly commercials, but I'm exposing myself to content on both sides. So, that's, so I recommend that. I, you, know, you don't have to do it the way I do it. But if you're not sampling both sides, you really don't know what's going on. But you might think you do, and that's the most dangerous situation. Well, you tell a story about uh, your dog Snickers that I think that really stayed with me. And, and it's, it's just it's a great anecdote. Um, you write, I think my dog Snickers believes I'm an idiot because I don't take her outside to play when she is clearly communicating to me that it is time to do so. Snickers knows she is sending me the let's go outside signal. So she knows I see it. She knows I am physically able to go outside. So if I don't stop what I'm doing and take her out, does she think I'm stupid? <laughs> and so you go on to say, you know, sometimes you're Snickers and sometimes... You're you in this scenario in in a way that requires empathy and requires imagination to to really think about where the other person is coming from. Yeah. So here's an example where uh, being an artist or a creative person gives you maybe a little better vision on the world than perhaps the engineer or the scientist. So before, when I was saying different professions have different styles of thinking, it wasn't to insult one because there, there's genius that goes across you know every kind of domain. But in this example, an artist or somebody who creates for a living might have a little more propensity to imagine there are other explanations for the facts. And the story I use in there is that my car is perpetually dirty. Now, if you saw my dirty car, you'd say to yourself, huh, it's kind of an expensive car. He could probably afford to get it washed. He's a cartoonist. He's got a flexible schedule. He certainly could get it washed. So if he can afford it, he has the time and it's never washed. He probably is saving water, or he's, he cares about something, or he's blind. We, you know, what's, what's the reason? Now, the real reason is the one you would never imagine. In fact, you're all trying to think of it right now. You're thinking, what's the real reason? What's the real reason? Is he going to tell us? Yeah, I'm going to tell you. The real reason is I have an irrational fear of public instructions. Now, I don't know if any of you have this, but I don't want to be in public where anybody can see me and I have to figure out the instructions while people are watching. And the problem is, I'm, t I'm too literal. Because it'll be very clear, but for example, if, you know, I use the example of, I go to a store and there'll be a sign that says, wait here. And then the cashier will say, next, come on up here. I'll, for a moment, I'll be stunned. Because I'll be like, well, it says wait here. But you're saying go up. I don't know if you have that authority. Because... <laughs> Did you make the sign? Is this your sign? Or, or is this your boss's sign? Because if it's your boss's sign, I'm waiting here. <laughs> so I don't want to get in this car wash, get halfway in, end up turned sideways. They have to dismantle the car wash to free me. And the headlines are, idiot cartoonist destroys car wash. That's why my car is dirty. Did you guess that? Did anybody guess that? Anybody have that one? No. So the point is that 
we, you have to make assumptions to live, right? You can't live and operate in the world without continuously making assumptions, including assumptions about what people are thinking, no matter how poorly we do it. You have to do it to survive. But just be aware that just because you can't think of the other reason that these things could happen, especially if you're watching the news, that doesn't mean that the one reason given is the reason. In fact, I talk about the 48-hour rule, uh, where you should just wait 48 hours when you see something in the news that you know, makes your, your blood boil, and you think, how could that happen? How could that happen? And then two days later, the news says, well, that didn't actually happen. It seems we, we got that wrong. Uh, <laughs> So just wait a couple days until the, the fog of war dissipates before you, you get too worked up about anything. Excellent. We have um, a number of questions from the audience. And so, so we're going to kind of ping back and forth between the book and some questions. But um, <laughs> this is a great question. <clears throat> Why does Dogbert's tail always wag when he does evil? <laughs> so the Dilbert characters are mostly versions of me. So you know how you have lots of different personalities that are sort of all inside you? Well, Dogbird is a part of my personality that says and does the things that I couldn't do because I would be beaten up or jailed. <laughs> and, but their thoughts, I mean, I think of those things. I just don't do them because it's not polite or illegal or whatever. So Dogbird can do them, and I like to show his delight by his tail because Dogbird doesn't have eyeballs or a mouth. So there's not much, you know, I, I got ears and a tail to work with. That's about it. <laughs> but he's enjoying it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, okay. So this question is, when do you find yourself using loser think? Are there, are there traps that you fall into that you have to really be conscious of? Yeah, all the time. The, the one I fall into all the time is using analogies for more than they should be used for. And it's just so easy because it's just a natural way to talk, to make analogies. Now, analogies are great for explaining a new concept for the first time. So if you're trying to tell somebody what a zebra is, they've never seen a zebra, but they know what a horse is, say, well, it's like a horse, but it's got a stripe. So it's just a, it's a good shortcut. What you don't want to do is use the analogy to predict. And in fact, if you turn on the news, you'll see all kinds of people doing exactly that. And it makes no sense. So if you see, for example, that your cat has a little marking under his nose that looks like a Hitler mustache, that doesn't mean your cat's going to invade Poland. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. And, and likewise, if you see the president criticizing the press, well, yeah, dictators did that. But that doesn't mean that he's going to invade Poland either. It could mean that the press has crossed the line and you know, it's productive or politically productive to criticize them. But don't, don't take the analogy as a predictive. Analogies are really bad ways to predict. Well, and also, um, so is the slippery slope. I mean, you talk about a number of things that people do to sort of future, future trip, as some people would say, about, you know, sort of how the sky is going to fall and how bad things are going to be based on um, history repeating itself. Yeah, hi history repeats is one of the, the biggest loser think examples that you're all familiar with. You've heard it a million times, right? You see it in the news, you see it in your own life. Well, history repeats. History doesn't repeat. It can't because you're in a different situation with different variables and often you've, you're familiar with the other history, you know, the real one. So, you know, that tells you not to do it this time. But the reason it seems like history repeats is that, first of all, we're just reminded of other things. That's the analogy problem. But we don't notice all the times history doesn't repeat. 
If, if you could somehow see a chart, it's like, here's your chart, your pie chart. Here are all the times history didn't repeat because it couldn't. And this little sliver, I don't know, sort of looks like something that happened before. But it's not predictive because you don't know which sliver is the one that's going to repeat coincidentally and which is going to be the one you never noticed didn't repeat. Um, in Win Bigley... Uh, you talk a little bit about your political views and uh, and about how sort of to some in some ways they're very liberal. And although although now you're doing a lot of um, I don't want to say defense, but you know you're doing a lot of sort of uh, at least on on the Twitter um, engaging people about allegations about the president. Um, can you talk about how that you know how that came to be and sort of. How you, how you ended up in this position of someone who may be really liberal on certain issues, but you find yourself sort of on, you know, defending a, a Republican president. So for the longest time, I called myself left to Bernie. And part of it was like a, a little joke on myself because there was nothing left to Bernie. You know, like, so it was just a way of not characterizing myself. But then the Democrats found a bunch of people who are left to Bernie. I'm like, oh, come on. I had, the, I had this space all to myself. You've ruined everything for me. So what it meant was, there, at least on social issues, I am left to Bernie. I'll give you some examples. Bernie would like to, I, I believe, legalize marijuana. I would go further and I would legalize more drugs, certainly mushrooms. And I would certainly do a test on opioids, you know, even if it's just locally. Just not uh, the drugs on commercials during the news. <laughs> right. uh, another example, just to make the point, on abortion, um, liberals and Bernie would say, yes, you know, under the right conditions, yes, on abortion. I go left to that and I say, I have a penis, I'm out. Whatever, you, whatever women want to do, I will be very supportive. So whatever is the consensus, I'm going to be quiet and supportive because I don't have, I don't have that kind of skin in the game and I don't add anything. Like, I, I don't have, like, the extra male smarts to add on top of your decision or anything like that. It's going to be exactly the same whether I have an opinion or not. So I think the most credible laws, and I like, when you, when you have laws that people will kill over, I mean, literally, abortion, people will kill over, over their preferences for that. When it's that uh, potentially destructive, you need a result, no matter which way it goes, that's credible. That the people say, oh, I didn't get my way, and it's really, really important to me, but the way we arrived at it, that looked credible to me. And to me, the more men who are involved in it, the less credible it is, and women will have largely the same opinions. You know, I, I don't, actually, I've never looked into it, but I don't think men and women have that much difference opinion on abortion. Does anybody know that? Are men and women about the same, roughly? All right, so I don't add anything, so I take myself out of that. Those are just two examples. So Donald Trump comes along. It was 2015, and I was just writing blog posts about whatever caught my attention. And I have a background as a trained hypnotist. And when I saw Trump, I said, hey, I recognize that technique. That's, that's you know, grade A, incredible persuasion. So I wrote a blog post and saying he was a clown genius. Instead of a clown, people were calling, hey, he's just a clown. I said, yeah, he's a clown, but why is it working? Right? There's technique here, and you don't see it if you haven't had experience in that domain. Back to the loser think example. But I could see it clearly, and I could, I could see the other people who also had the same, the same background could also see it just as clearly. 
Mike Cernovich is a classic example. He has some of the same you know, training with hypnosis and stuff. And he saw it early, same time I did. And we, what we saw was a guy bringing a flamethrower to a stick fight. And I didn't think it was a hard prediction because you know, flamethrower beats stick almost every time. <laughs> um, so by the time, and, and so I was just writing about his persuasion skill. It wasn't about Democrats or, it wasn't about anything except this persuasion. But you know, you get pulled into it and there was more demand. The first article was you know, massively viral and people wanted to interview me about it and suddenly I got, I got dragged in. Now, I will claim I, I did get to meet the president a year ago. He invited me to the Oval Office. And it was just the freakiest experience. Sitting in the Oval Office with the president of the United States on the other side of the, the Resolute desk, just chatting. <laughs> There's no experience I'll ever have that will, will come close to how weird and, and cool that was. So here's did you my. Steal the soap. <laughs> I, did, I did not steal the That's soap. That's disappointing. I would steal this. A lot of cameras in there. <laughs> uh, but so I will cop to the fact that you can't hang out with him and then still be, you know, as critical as maybe you could have been. Because I like him personally. Personally, if you hang out with him for 10 minutes, no matter what you started with, 10 minutes later, you're going to say, but he is a nice guy. You know, he's really generous. Imagine this, the, the guy who has more responsibility than maybe anybody in the world. And for half an hour, he made me feel like I was the only thing that mattered. Like I was the only person in the room. And, and he could do that to you, too. So here, here's the thing. He, he does have that charisma, that, that ability to make people like him and hate him, too, you know, for different reasons. So I'm not biased in terms of him personally. Personally, I like him. What I thought the country would get out of him, and the reason that I didn't feel... Uh, I didn't feel any conflict about promoting his abilities, which helped promote him, is that I saw he was bringing a toolkit that had tools in it we've never seen before. <laughs> and, and sometimes your civilization will get a little ossified. You know, you'll, you'll get sort of stuck. And, and it's something that an ordinary politician can't unstick. You know, and examples would be you know, trade with China. Remember when he first started talking about it and everybody said, oh, trade war's bad, trade war's bad. Uh, how about that record stock market? <laughs> trade war's not so bad, not so bad. And in fact, if we never make an agreement, which by the way, I predict, I don't predict we'll ever have an agreement, except maybe on some small stuff, um, I think we'll be fine. And we'll just gradually decouple from China, as we should anyway. And uh, anyway, so I think he, br- he brought to the mix a set of tools that I thought could break free some things that just needed to be, you just, the box just needed to be shaken and then see what we can do after you shake the box. I knew that it would be messy. I knew that there would be breakage. <laughs> but everybody who voted for him knew that and they knew what they were getting. They got the breakage. They got the benefits. The benefits are, I would say, enormous at this part. You know, if you like lack of war, you like beating the caliphate, you know, if you like the good economy. If you don't like those things, maybe you have a different opinion. But uh, And then on the personal stuff, of course, he's driving people crazy, which is definitely a cost. Right? The, the way people feel about each other and the, and, the, and the just political heat definitely is an expense. But I thought that was a worthy expense to get some stuff done, 
The next president can bring the temperature down and we will bank those other benefits. Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 parties of San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Who do you suppose will be the next president? Oh, well, I think... Mr. Super Predictor. I think Trump will win easily for uh, re-election. I don't think that's much in doubt at this point. Uh, But the one after, the one after, that's where it's going to get interesting. Sooner or later, AOC and Matt Gaetz are going to be running for president against each other. Probably not 2024, but I'd be amazed... Are they old enough? She's not. He might be, barely. Okay. Yeah. Um, But sooner or later, they'll run against each other. Kanye said he's running. Uh, Before you laugh, well before he said that, I had identified him as another master persuader. Uh, Long before he was talking about anything politically, I had written blog posts saying, oh my God, there's something he's doing that's not like normal people. It's not like I write about music. I mean, it's not my domain at all. But I, I was just seeing something that was another level. There's, there's an extra persuasive level there. And you see it. Um, you, you see the impact he has on everything. You know, anytime you inject Kanye into any topic, it's all changed. I mean, he's just such a, a force. So now he's doing sort of a there's religious revival stuff. And... I think maybe he's setting his his sights higher than president, literally. I think he wants to be a spiritual leader in the United States. And maybe saying he's going to run for president is sort of good for effect. But I think he actually has bigger sights than the president. Bigger than the president? Well, we don't really have, do we, a a spiritual leader who who is non-denominational. We don't really have that, do we? Got quiet, didn't it? I don't know, Oprah? Because well, you've got you know you've got your mega churches, and and every every religion has a leader, and some of them you could name, but we don't have somebody who's non-denominational and you know w- would be regarded by everybody as open-minded to all the other religions. He does have a place that could be bigger than anything we've seen politically. Uh, so you don't think he'll run for president? You he think might. that's beneath him? No, he might. Uh, but, oh, okay. but I think it, but I think he might have a bigger role. But you don't think any of the Democrats now, including Bloomberg, now Bloomberg, um, have a shot? Well, 
You know, years ago, I actually um, wrote that Bloomberg would be an excellent choice for president because I liked him. He was sort of middle road. He was pragmatic. He seemed to be able to break with his party if he felt it. You know, he was smart. He had all the qualities. But he's also 77. And if you haven't seen his speech, or, or, or even worse, his uh, mobile phone little video he did, <laughs> where you, you got to tell these guys over 70, turn the phone sideways, please. Turn the side, turn it sideways. Because if you can't do that, you can't be president. Just turn it sideways. So uh, just if you haven't seen Mike Bloomberg yet give his a speech and announcing or his little video that I just mentioned with the phone, somebody was holding up a phone, you have to see it because he's not the Mike Bloomberg he used to be, I'm, I'm afraid. I, I hate to say that. But it's a little bit of the Joe Biden problem, which is uh, great patriots, you know, great contribution to the country, total respect for both of those people. But there is an age where we all need to know it's time for somebody in the family to, you know, <laughs> guide you off. And uh, I'm there. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, Bloomberg's there. But I don't know if he's trying to be president or he's got a better play. Because running for president allows him to go in strong and trash Trump so effectively, plus you know, his money, plus the fact he'll get TV time. He may be doing it just for the Democrat who emerges. It may be just just a way to weaken Trump so that, that they have a chance. It might be a way to take Biden out. Because Bloomberg goes in, and the people who said, well, I might donate to Biden, they're going to say, oh, hold off a little bit. Because there's a guy who's the same age, similar politics, but he can fund himself. So he might be doing it just to get Biden out, because Biden can't possibly win against Trump. It's just a terrible matchup. But that helps, you know, like Elizabeth Warren, um, for example. I mean, is that... In the long term? I'm pretty sure that Bloomberg doesn't want Elizabeth Warren to be president So that's either. what I mean. Like, so this play of, of getting rid of Biden, I, I think only helps maybe people that Bloomberg may not be. Yeah. So to imagine it's a four-dimensional chess thing, you have, you have to work pretty hard to make it make sense. Probably he's just running for president. But he's so smart and strategic that it's hard to understand why he would do something he couldn't possibly win unless he surprises us all. But at this point, it looks like he couldn't possibly win. Well, you know, well, it's so interesting. I'm going to bring it right back to the book with this. All righty. So in, in your book, you write about, and this is, in the book, you're writing about financial advisors. And so to some degree, uh, some parts of the book are about how to be more skeptical, right? To so sort of how to filter what you're hearing from the horrible people in the media. Uh, and so, but, but you write, uh, you write about financial advisors, um, and just sort of how to be skeptical of them. And then you write, um, and so, cause these, they, there's little sort of Twitter ready little parts <laughs> for you to, for you to take a picture of, put it right on the Twitter. So the little Twitter ready part says, be skeptical of any experts who have a financial incentive to mislead you and almost no risk at their end. And I wrote political consultants. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I wonder if, if a couple of dudes with a PowerPoint um, didn't get in his ear and say, here's the plan. You just give us a whole bunch of money. And this is, happens all the time. I mean, in California, especially, we see this all the time where you see wealthy people just burning their money. And you go, who, why? 
consultants. Um, and so that may be part of it as well. Maybe somebody got in his ear and had, had the right chart to show him. That, that's actually one of the best hypotheses. I haven't heard that one before. But, but when, when you think it through... Who the PowerPoint? Done. Yeah, when you think it through, how hard would it be for really persuasive consultants who would know they get a big paycheck to convince a 77-year-old, yeah, this is your time? You know? I mean, it, it borders on elder abuse. <laughs> But if they only get a billion out of them, he's still okay. He's still okay. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, some more audience questions here. Um, somebody wrote, please share any insights or opinions you have about thinkers such as Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Haidt, and Ken Wilber's integral theory. Well, Follow those that's, guys? A, that's a big question. Um, Jordan Peterson, for a long time, I would ban people from mentioning him on my Periscope. And people thought, oh, you must dislike Jordan Peterson. No, it was because he was so popular, I was sick of hearing about him. <laughs> People kept saying, well, what do you think of Jordan Peterson? I was like, banned. I'm sick of seeing it. Um, but then I listened to him. So I was like, all right, I've heard his name a billion times. I'm so sick of it. And then I listened to a, a YouTube video. It doesn't matter which one, because they're all amazing. And I thought, wow, this is like powerful and different and important. You know, usually you don't go to YouTube to find something important. But I thought, this is way beyond just helpful. This is important. And so I got hooked, as many people do. So I started watching his content. And it was just so useful. And I don't even know how to explain it. It was just so different and fresh and useful. And it was changing people. You can see people were changing. Now, you may know the story. He's, he's checked himself in for rehab. So he apparently had some issues, got on some whatever, doesn't matter, but he checked himself in for rehab. I think he's still there, working through it. And I, I realized that um, on one side, you say to yourself, oh, you hate to see your heroes you know, go, to, go to rehab. But I have a different opinion about that because um, he's a role model. And him going to rehab is one of the most important things that's ever happened in this country. And wait till he comes back. It's going to be awesome. The other people I don't know about. <laughs> I, I never heard of those other guys. Hey, I, th I think his, his religious videos, his videos about religion, um, are, really, are really interesting. If you're thinking about, like, you know, sort of who's our spiritual leader that sort of can, you know, traverse various faiths. Um, it's very sort of... Campbell kind of way of pulling yeah. of pulling from from all different strands and sort of bringing uh, it together. But just to, uh, just to put a pin in that point, the fact that he has it so together in terms of how to live your life, but he still had to go to rehab, like that's an important message. That 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 the addiction thing is not about being smarter, or clever, or trying harder. The the addiction's its own thing, and it can get anybody. And it's very important. Someone asks, um, you once had a fear of public speaking. How did you get over it? Well, I wouldn't say I ever had a fear. So I'm a natural ham. But um, I took the Dale Carnegie course. And if you haven't heard of that, it's one of the best things I've ever done. It's life-altering. Life because what it does is it teaches you to do what I'm doing now, which is talk to a group of people as easily as if you were just talking to somebody you know. And it teaches you to do that. And what I watched was, in the class, I watched person after person 
who mostly had been sent there by a boss usually because they couldn't stand in front of people and talk. They would get too nervous. And I remember watching uh, uh, a woman who was in the class and you had, you had to volunteer to talk. So you had to, you, know, you, you had to decide when you were ready to come up and everybody would talk everybody to the class. And she stood up there, and I have to do the impression. I think I can stand up here. And she st- stood up there, and she couldn't make words. And she started sweating in, in an air-conditioning room. And I watched beads of sweat while she's standing in front of the room trying to talk. They're like running off her nose, down her chin, and actually fell on the carpet in front of a room like this. And she was afraid of public speaking, and that was her experience. Now, the thing you need to know about the class is that there was only one rule, that everybody gets complimented, and you never criticize anything. So nobody who speaks will ever hear a bad word about them. She goes back to her chair, completely defeated. We're, we're in the audience, and we're, you know, we're dying. We're dying for her. And the instructor gets up, and he says, wow, that was brave. And it was true. That was true. Next time, she came up a little bit better. By the end of the class, she was a professional speaker. Because she, she lived through the worst and got a compliment. <laughs> and got a lot of compliments, because we all complimented her. Uh, so, watching that, um, so watching that transformation from nothing but positive words is just life-changing. Because you realize... Um, you realize the power of a compliment to the point where uh, my current philosophy is that if you withhold a compliment that you're thinking, you know, you're thinking something good about somebody and you think, oh, well, I don't need to say that. It's almost immoral if you've got a compliment. Just let it out. What a great point. <laughs> Thank you. Uh- <laughs> Thank-, Thank you. <laughs> I feel a lot better now. I'm letting it out. Uh, so actually, you do write about this in your book, so I want to sort of give you uh, a, an opening to, to get to it. One person in the audience wrote, what are some go-to questions that you can use to challenge and broaden your colleagues' thinking? Go-to questions. All right, well, I, I use a technique called the magic question. When, when people are uh, you know, disagreeing with you, I, I have this experience... They think they're disagreeing with my opinion, but really they formed a misleading opinion of my opinion, and they're really arguing the misleading thing, not my actual opinion. And, I, and if I try to correct it and say, oh, that's not, not my opinion, it's, it's actually this, do they then argue that your actual opinion? Never, never. No, they just turn that into a new wrong opinion so they can argue that one. So... Um, trying to get people to actually argue with my actual opinion has never worked in my entire life. But this technique I've tested, and it does work. It's the magic question. It goes like this. You say to the person who's arguing with you, tell me something that you think is true that you think I don't think is true. Just one thing you think is true that matters to this topic that you think I don't think is true. And they'll offer something. You'll say, no, I agree with you. We, we both think that's true. And they'll try another one. When they get to about the third one, they usually disappear. Because <laughs> they realize that they didn't even know what they were arguing about because you're, you're agreeing on the central points. You know, it seems, um, I'm not on Twitter, but, uh, so I'm biased. But why do you argue with folks? 
Just that's it. That's the question. Just like what I mean, like because it just seems so futile sometimes. I mean, you get in there, you're spending your energy to to try and change people's minds. And it just seems like I mean, assuming it's a person and not like bot, assuming it's a human, um, then, you know, there you are spending your time trying to, you know, change the opinions of, you know, like Red Hat 52, you know, like somewhere. Sorry, Red Hat 52. I don't. Yeah. Um, well, I can only speak for myself there, which is um, I get benefits that the ordinary person doesn't get. Because, for one, people follow my Twitter, and they follow the comments as well. And because I'm a cartoonist, I have wittier comments than, <laughs> than other people, because that's my job. <laughs> and so, so I was, sometimes I like being witty because it's part of the show. So if I can argue in a witty way, that's, it's just entertaining. But I also am drawn to it. I love it, but it's also educational because you can see, okay, what response did I get? You're, you're learning what other people's arguments are, which strengthens your argument. So to me, it's just all good. But I have a very high tolerance for trolls and, and insults and a lot of personal insults. You, you get insulted a lot on Twitter. <laughs> uh, but I have a high tolerance for that. It doesn't bother me. So I can get most of the benefits... Because the bad parts, the, the trolly stuff, it just doesn't bother me. That's a superpower. That's amazing. Um, all righty. So what is your advice to someone who is a conservative but who works in a liberal industry like entertainment, movies, or music? Is it possible to be openly conservative without ruining a person's career? No. <laughs> um, uh, but I'll give you some suggestions to make it go down better. Uh, certainly, you probably want to keep the most provocative stuff to yourself. But if you're, if you're surrounded by people who disagree with you, try pacing. Pacing is a hypnosis trick. It's a salesman, salesperson trick, etc. And it means agreeing with people on all the things you can agree with and, and even matching them in style. You know, you might match their body language, you might match the way they speak, the, you know, anything you can match, their breathing, you name it. As many things as you can match with somebody will make them feel more bonded and connected to you. They won't maybe think it in their head, but they'll feel it. They're, they're, this is a person who's like me in all these ways. So then, if you need to disagree, they're at least primed. You know, you've set the table. This is someone who realizes that they've agreed with you on 10 things, or at least they're compatible on 10 things. So now you can introduce that 11th thing. But you don't want to walk right into the middle of it with your MAGA hat on and like, yeah, Trump. (laughs) Don't play it that way. Yeah. Uh, This person writes, Dilbert is the only mailing list that I have been a subscriber for for the last 10 years. Haven't all the characters learned from their mistakes over the years? (laughs) Uh, If they did, I'd need a new job. (laughs) So, yeah, the beauty of the Dilbert uh, comic strip world is that the characters exist, so I don't have to think too hard. Uh, uh, It's not like writing a new movie every day, because you've already got the characters. So I just take the topic and throw it into that world and say, well, that's something a lazy guy would respond to, Wally. So so it's, it's easier to write once you've got your character set. Any situation works. Well, this person writes, which Dilbert character are you? Now, I think you've said that you're all of them, but is there one that you feel especially uh, close to, maybe the, the, the main character? Well, originally, Dilbert was, was based on me. So he had my uh, lack of social um, graces, 
my nerdy interests. You know, he was a single guy. I was a single guy at the time. So he was, he was basically an extended version of me, except he was smarter because he was an engineer. I'm not an engineer. And his body, body shape is actually based on a coworker. So there's... Do they know? Here's, here's the fun part. He doesn't know. <laughs> I, I've never told him. And, What's his name? Let's tell him. Uh, and, well, I, di- I didn't even know him that well. He was just somebody in the office. And I'd see him walk by, and he just looked like a walking Dilbert, I guess. A, a cartoon. So I always wondered, years later, is he ever in, the, you know, in line at Safeway or something? And Does anybody ever tap him on the shoulder and say, you remind me of, I can't place it. <laughs> but he doesn't know. Um, okay, so this person wants to know why you don't like the Godfather film. You don't like the Godfather? I, <laughs> did you hear the murmur? <laughs> this is very I f- upsetting. I feel like I need security to get out of this <laughs> You <room> may. <laughs> um, I will make a general statement that I can't watch movies at all anymore. I've, I've completely given up on movies because my attention span has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until it's Twitter-sized, you know? <laughs> And watching a you know, two-and-a-half-hour movie on anything is just painful now. It's like going to the dentist for me. It's like, ah, they're moving so slowly. And so that's the first thing. But, um, you know, was it the producer of The Godfather recently who was making fun of the Avenger films? Because they were all... Was it Coppola? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Scorsese. He was making fun of the uh, Avenger-type films and the superhero films. And, and I'm thinking to myself... There's a reason they make a billion dollars, because they're really entertaining. And those movies that don't make a billion dollars, there's a reason they don't make a billion dollars. They're not that entertaining. If they were, they'd make a billion dollars. So I have this weird background where I'm part artist, part economist, you know, which is a weird combination. And so when somebody says, is somebody's art good? I usually say, is anybody buying it? If they're buying it, it's good. If they buy it twice, it's really good. And if they don't buy it, I don't care how much art went into it. Nobody wants it. So, you know, Dilbert was created because the audience said, hey, we kind of like your generic cartoon. In the beginning, it wasn't in the workplace so much. But we like it a lot when he's in the workplace. So unlike Scorsese, I said, what is it my, my buyers want? They want it to be in the workplace? Done. So I moved it into the workplace, and that's when Dilbert took off. So I am not on the side of the artists who have... Uh, there's this thing called artistic integrity I've heard of. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I try to avoid it at all costs because... Is that loser think? Yeah, it should be, I should, <laughs> in the sequel. No, I mean, you know, if you're an artist, you should be making things for the audience, not for yourself. So if the audience isn't willing to shell out some hard cash for it, you didn't make anything. Let the hate mail begin. <laughs> Bring it on. Uh, <laughs> actually, this is probably this is related to the, to the earlier question. This might be the same answer. Um, what is the most dangerous idea that you have and that you believe in? Not liking Godfather might be it, but is there something else? The most dangerous idea. I guess it would be dangerous to whom? To me or to other people? Other um, people, I would assume. Uh, so I'm a believer in we live in a simulation. Uh, 
I heard a groan out there because you've heard it too many times for me probably. Anybody who watches me on Periscope knows I talk about this too much. So, And this requires a little explanation, if you don't. Please. First, let me say that there are brilliant people who have the same opinion. Elon Musk is one physicist. Uh, in fact, it was invented by a physicist. Nick Bostrom, I think. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> all, all the smartest people. And the idea is this that if it would be possible in our lifetime, and it certainly will, for us to build a little software world where there are characters in the world, and those characters live and, as if they're real. And so they have, they have a, a program belief that they're real characters. Now, if we tried to build it today, it would be a basic version, but certainly in 30 years, we'll be able to make little people who act like they're alive, and as far as they know, they are. So if that's going to be possible in our lifetime, or even if you think it's the one after, eventually it's going to happen, how many are we going to make? Just one? No. The minute we can make a total world that's like a real software simulation that thinks it's a real world, we're going to make a bunch of them. How do you know it hasn't already happened? If it has ever happened, there are lots of them. And the people in them think they're real. So, the questions you would ask yourself to, yeah, yeah. Now, it's dangerous because it would rip apart everything you believe, religions would fall apart, etc., and there would be chaos. But let, let me just put this out here, food for thought. What would the world look like if it were programmed? Well, for one thing, you wouldn't put things, uh, you wouldn't program a world that hadn't been observed yet. So in other words, it would be like a software game where if your little character in the game is not walking to this adjacent property, it never gets formed. It doesn't exist until he needed to. Does our world look like that? At the quantum level, it does. So, the, so at the, if you go down to the smallest level, things don't exist. They only probably exist until somebody sees it or measures it. So we actually know that reality doesn't come into being and become solid until somebody needs it, meaning that they observe it or they measure it with an instrument. Um, you would also want to have a world where you couldn't get out of it and look for, look for the outside. Can you get to the edge of the universe? Nope, you can't. So you could go right down the line of all the things that you would need to be true for us to be software and they're all there. <laughs> uh, and then the math, that if you're going to have every one, there will be lots of them. And if they're really well designed, the simulation will build its own simulations all the way down. So, are, Is this non-falsifiable, though? I mean, is this, is, this a, is this a theory that you can't get out of? Like, how do you disprove this theory? It's the, it's the magical monkeys theory. Like, it's how do you... Um, I don't have a solution for proving it. Mm -hmm. But like most of religious beliefs, they also are tough to falsify. You know, it's like, uh, does God exist or is he hiding? Well, if he's, you know, all powerful, he could hide pretty easily. So that's why we don't find him. So none of these things can be proven or disproven. But if you live your life like it's a simulation and you imagine that you can hack it, then that would be one explanation for my life as it is right now because... My life is crazy. I mean, I just told you, I just went and chatted with the president. <laughs> That's not normal. I've got, a, I've got a best-selling book. I've got a cartoon strip. I get to talk to all of you, you people. 
I don't have a normal life in any way, but I've lived it like I can program it. So I've taken, I've taken the assumption from an early age that, that reality would be programmable, at least for me, and treated it that way. And I programmed exactly the life I fantasized as a kid. It's literally exactly the life that I imagined when I was six years old. Now, and what, um, what, what was the name of the book, How to Lose at Everything and Still? Oh, uh, <laughs> We're plugging the book with all f- the tips of success. How to Fail Almost Everything and Still Win Big. That was a prior book. Yeah. There we go. Uh, and actually, this sort of feeds into this. this one person in the audience asked, um, speaking of poets, which you referenced at the beginning, um, uh, we, there is one poet who characterizes our deathless techie culture as illiterate, tasteless, boorish, whiny, and awash with money. Certainly the right place to ask that question. Um, what are you, <laughs> right here in, in San Francisco. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? What do you make of the tech culture? Is this something that you're, you're, you're like, sign me up? I want to <laughs> be in the cryogenic chamber? Well, the, the reason that I'm the creator of Dilbert is that I love that world, you know, the, the technology world. I wish I had gone to school for some kind of te- you know, technical degree. Because if I, if I were not doing what I'm doing, that's probably what I'd be doing. I'd be building apps and stuff. Well, I, I have a startup. I, I do build apps. But I'd be doing more of it. And so I love it. Um, but I do hear terrible things from people who are in it. <laughs> uh, I, I hear that even the people who are making good money in tech are just desperately unhappy and unfulfilled for a variety of reasons. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how universal it is. But it sounds doesn't sound good. So, uh, but as long as it's uh, as long as it has problems, I'll have material for Dilbert. So that's okay. <laughs> it was silver lining. Uh, this one person in the audience wants to know um, about persuasion and Trump's mentors. Um, wants to know your comments on Norman Vincent Peale and Roy Cohn. Norman Vincent Peale. Um, how many of you have heard the name Norman Vincent Peale? Show of hands. All right, maybe half or so. So uh, when I was a kid, he was um, already well known as one of the most influential authors and writers about the power of positive thinking. In other words, the the idea that you could program your simulation. He didn't use those words, but the idea that you could sort of program your reality, your life by by changing how you thought. And I was very influenced by that, and uh, so was Donald Trump. In fact, Norman Vincent Peale was not only a, a massive, you know, best-selling author, he was actually the Trump family pastor or minister, I forget which, which word it is, but that's who he would see in church. So he would go to church on Sunday and see the most influential person, maybe whoever lived in the United States, you know, Tony Robbins would be maybe the, the new one. And so that's, that's the influence he was getting every Sunday. And I asked him about that, actually, when I, when I talked with him. And he, he went on about how amazing Norman Vincent Peale was. And Norman Vincent Peale was actually accused of being, in his lifetime, accused of being a hypnotist because he was so influential. So we know that the president picked it up. You know, he got it, honestly, from the best source ever. I would love to see a study of all the people who attended that church. And, and compare them to the average. That would be interesting. Because I, I can almost guarantee you that their, their life results are completely different than ordinary people. 
So that's one. Uh, then the Roy Cohn thing, uh, I don't know too much about Roy Cohn, you know, except probably what you know, that he you know, wasn't big on apologizing. He was attack all the time, you know, win, win, win. And you see all that, those qualities in Trump, but you also see the persuasion part of him. So he's got a lot going on there. Uh, you talk a lot in the book, just in the context of various kinds of arguments and ways to think about things about climate change. And uh, sort of the folks here in Northern California, you know, we're, we, uh, you know, with uh, wildfires, mudslides, there's a lot going on here. And so talk a little bit about your perspective on how people should think about uh, climate change in a, in a way that's not loser think. All right. So I'm not going to try to change any of your minds. So you're safe. Okay, so whatever you thought about climate change before, you're going to leave thinking the same thing. But all I talk about is a productive way to to analyze it. If that causes you to change your own mind, then that's that's your business. But here here are some insights on that. Uh, I think it's useful to break up the climate change conversation into its parts and give them different levels of credibility. So the central part is what the scientists are doing, which is the, you know, the chemistry and the physics. If you add some CO2 to the air, do, does it get warmer? I'm pretty sure they got that right, because that, that seems really right in their strike zone, been repeated in you know, laboratory tests, just in every way, that's solid. Now the question is, you know, how quickly and, and how, to, how much does it matter? So then the scientists, as part of their persuasion... And scientists are not good at persuasion. This is a problem. They make these models. Now, are those models accurate? Well, nobody knows, and there, there's lots of debate, and there are different models, and they, there's a big range. And, and what happens to the models that didn't work? Do they keep them, or do they throw them away? Because if you have hundreds of models, and there are, and you throw away all the ones that didn't work this year, it will look to you, exactly like your models work. But it's because you're throwing out the ones that aren't working. So there's a little bit of an illusion there. Now, is it true that the temperature is going up at a rate that we should be alarmed at? Probably. Probably the models are at least that good because we can measure the temperature or we're getting better at it. Satellites are doing it now, etc. So we're probably reasonably solid, although we don't know, you know how quickly. Then there's a third part. Here's where it all goes to hell. Because the third part is the economics. Because to figure out how big a deal it is, it all comes down to money. If you have to move your beach house, that costs money. If you lose a job, that costs money. If your crops fail, it's money. So when they move it to the economics part, now you're in my domain. All right? I used to do financial projections for a living. And uh, I know that they're, they're all bogus. Everyone I ever produced was no better than a guess. So once it gets to the economic part, what reliability should you put on that? Well, here's, here's a little eye-opener for you. The UN said that over 80 years, if things go the way it's predicted, and so that's sort of a bad case scenario, if things go the way it's predicted at the end of 80 years, the UN, so this is an official prediction, says that the GDP could be as much as 10% lower. And I'm thinking to myself, Wow, 10%, that's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And a 10% you know, reduction in our economy today would be massively expensive and people would starve to death and you know, it would be a really big deal. But I also have a degree in economics and I know how to look at these things. And when I saw it, I, th- I said, hey, in 80 years, our GDP will be five to 10 times bigger than it is now. 
if at the end of 80 years, after it's gone up five or 10 times, if it's 10% less than it could have been, would you notice? (laughs) You wouldn't. You wouldn't even know the difference. You would think things are great. Fewer people would be in poverty, the food would be cheaper, the robots are scratching your back. I mean, it's going to be a wonderful world in 80 years. In the simulation, obviously. Now, keep in mind that that's the UN's dire bad case, I don't know if it's worst case, but it's their most likely bad case prediction, is that you're not even going to notice it. Now, until I told you that, did you realize that, that that's a complete phony number? Because the GDP will be so big that that little 10% will be trivial. Now, is it accurate? Probably not, because I did financial projections for a living. We have no idea what the economics are. What company did you work for? (laughs) Uh, They're they're all out of business. Uh, That's probably a coincidence. Uh, (laughs) Crocker Bank, they got got swallowed up by Wells Fargo, and Pacific Bell, they got eaten by Verizon. Um, So... Uh, so what do you do about all this, given the great uncertainty? Well, here's the good news. There are already several startups that are building uh, giant uh, scrubbing machines that literally will pull the CO2 out of the air, and in several of those cases, will turn it into products. One turns it into jet fuel, because that's one of the things that's hard to make. It's hard to make an electric jet, so you're still going to need jet fuel. Um, one makes it into plastic. Some other do some other things. Now, which one of those will be the winner? I don't know. Maybe, maybe none of them. But it's sort of like the, the PC industry in the beginning, where it was hard in the beginning to know which company would, have, you know, would, would last. But you knew PCs and computers were going to last. So likewise, with this CO2 scrubbing stuff, I don't know if any of these specific startups will last, but it's a thing. And it's going to be an industry, and it's going to be a big deal. And governments would presumably pay a lot for it if they, if they thought there was a danger. Then you also have nuclear energy. If you're not up on nuclear power, let me give you the 60-second thing that you need to know. Your, your grandfather's nuclear power was a little more dangerous than it needed to be, and those versions of nuclear power are all of the meltdowns and problems you've ever heard of, from Fukushima to Chernobyl. Those are early versions of nuclear. We would never build any of those models today. Today, you would build what's called Generation 3. The number of Generation 3 reactors, there's lots of them in the world, that have ever had a nuclear incident is zero. None. It's literally the safest technology for energy ever created because even you know, every other form of energy is killing people. People are literally falling off roofs, installing solar power. Like, literally, more people have died from solar power. More people have died from you know, putting up a windmill than have died from all of the Generation 3 nuclear power plants in the world. And here's the better part. There's a Generation 4 coming. Generation 4 is backed by people like Bill Gates. He's put a ton of money into it. There's a company called TerraPower, and there's several of these, right? So this is just one of them. One of the things that their technology can do, Generation 4, it can eat existing nuclear waste as its fuel. It actually reduces nuclear waste in the world. And you can put it right next to an old plant and have it eat all the nuclear waste until the old one closes. And it's built so if everything goes wrong, it just turns off. So the current versions, you have to get, feed energy in it to keep it from melting down. 
So if you lose energy, it's a catastrophe. The new versions, as soon as the energy goes away, the reaction goes away. So that's, those are already designed, and they're already looking for a place to build it, and they can do it economically, they can make it safe. You'll want it in your neighborhood because it will reduce the nuclear waste if you already had some there. So, <laughs> so the point is that if you're looking at an 80-year projection for climate change, I'm glad that some people are panicked because that gets them to invent things and do all the things they need to do. But man, we as a, as a population, as a species, we're really good at solving problems when we see them coming that far away. So I'm not going to worry about it because I think we got this handled. But there's something to worry about. I'm just personally not going to worry about it. On that optimistic note, um, we want to thank very much Scott Adams, the Dilbert creator and author of the new book, Loser Think. We want to thank him for joining us today. Copies of Loser Think are available for purchase just outside this room, and Scott will be taking photos here on stage in just a few minutes. Please form an orderly line on the left side over there. Uh, I'm Melissa Kane. On behalf of myself and Scott Adams and the Commonwealth Club, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.